Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. We are excited because uh, after a year or so of being uh, remotely connecting with each other to record this podcast, Michael, Richard, and myself are together back in the studio. So, woohoo! Fanfare! So, if our sound quality <laughs> sucks, it's just us. It's not the connection. We can't blame Zoom. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we, we, that that is the only thing that's changed. We're still doing the same thing. <laughs> we are uh, rating, uh, reviewing, uh, debating, deliberating the most ubiquitous aspect of a variety of topics. And this week is uh, no different. It is the Mount Rushmore of manias. Richard thunk it up. What, yeah, what, what? I don't know why I thought of this necessarily. I think I think I was thinking about one of the ones on this list mm-hmm. that I have. Okay, and it just got me thinking of you know there are a lot of things that have been called something mania. Yeah. This thing is this is this is a phenomenon that's happened throughout history. Right on. Okay. So let's let's dig into it a okay. little bit. Okay. I love it. Our, uh, Richard chose it, so Michael starts. Uh, so my first choice, it's probably the one that you might have thought of, Richard. Maybe not, but um, you know, I'm going to just say it. WrestleMania. Oh yeah, that's on my list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where uh, I love the idea. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the history of it, but I love the idea that these people that are in the ring are potentially so crazy and obsessed about wrestling that they're they have this neurosis that they are like just uh they're so motivated they, yeah. they just can't not but wrestle they yeah. cannot they but, can, they but can. only once or twice a week on the broadcast and then once a month on a pay-per-view yeah but but the wrestlemania as as a concept you know um I just love the idea that people are, you know, they dress up in these crazy outfits mm-hmm. and they have to do it. And then yeah. they have to get in there and, you know, have a parrot on their shoulder <laughs> as well or whatever, you know. Is this going beyond the normal, logical, uh, regular amount of wrestling that should exist in a person's life so that WrestleMania is an inordinate amount of wrestling? Yeah. It's an aberrant. Yeah. I know that throughout the years, you know, it, it's probably should have changed to WrestlePalooza yeah. and then uh, okay. Wrestle WrestleGeddon. <laughs> <laughs> when they just started adding the different uh, the different suffixes on the yeah. ends, but um, you know, WrestleMania started in the early '80s, where um, Vince McMahon, um, you know, CEO or whatever he is of owner owner of Boss WWF, mm-hmm. you know, started going into all these other people's territories and buying them up, yeah. and then decided he wanted to put on a big, um, you know, kind of nationally televised event, and they did it through. Uh, I can't remember what the name of the system is, but basically it's like they had a bunch of people come out to see it in the arena, but then they also broadcast it live to movie theaters. Hmm. So you'd have to go to a movie theater to watch wrestling, like live broadcast <laughs> to a movie theater. It, wasn't, it was like before like the real pay-per-views. Obviously yeah. now, like Richard said, they have a rest, they have WrestleMania comes on and it's on, you know, WWE the app the or now or it's on NBC or what, whoever Peacock, owns yeah. it now. Um, and they have, you know, like monthly pay-per-views and all these different things that have kind of definitely diluted the specialness of this yeah. once a year thing. Yeah. As a kid growing up, I remember there was kind of just the, the four of them. There was like WrestleMania and then there was SummerSlam, uh, Survivor Series and Royal, Royal Rumble. Royal. And then of course, four is not enough. There's 12 months. So let's add in Backlash, and then let's add in Vernal Equinox. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so what's the what's the Arbor Day one yeah. where they're, they they wrestle they wrestle on. each other with limbs? <laughs> but um, you know the the big showcase. I think uh, Vince McMahon definitely had an eye for uh, a bigger picture than what 
all these other little territories really were running around. They were focused on, you know, we broadcast TV. We do have our wrestlers in these areas, and that's it. And then he was like, well, I'll just do everything. And so what are you going to do? Yeah, he was the first one to think nationally. Yeah. Instead of just like in your own little mid-Atlantic mm-hmm. or Texas or Florida or wherever. Yeah. He was the first one to think this could be a, a national or even a global sort of entity. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize I was doing the research on this. I, I guess WWF at the time was in the red and bleeding money. And he actually had to put up uh, his house as collateral hmm. to get the money to be able to pay such luminaries who showed up at the first <laughs> WrestleMania as well, here we go. Well, Muhammad Ali. That's a big get uh-huh. Cindy Lauper, which in like 85, that's, that's a big deal. Liberace. Well, Billy Martin, <laughs> Mr. T. <laughs> Wow. That sounds like the greatest love boat episode I've ever heard of. But yeah, he had to basically risk everything for this like concept of, you know, you could do this massive show. And then the other thing I didn't realize, and I remember watching, I didn't, my family, we didn't have pay-per-view at the time. I don't know that anyone around us did. Um, And we certainly didn't go to the, what probably would have been Selland Arena to go see the, uh, the, Closed circuit. So we did what I think most. Thank you. Closed circuit. I couldn't think of the name. So um, my, I think I did what most people did is we watched, we rented the video of it like six months later. It came out on Coliseum video. Mm -hmm. Um, And the actual WrestleMania itself was only two hours long. Now, Michael used to host, have me over to watch WrestleMania for a few times. And he can attest to this. WrestleMania is like six hours long now. It's just a long. It's like a long. I'm not night. kidding. Yeah. This is not exaggeration. It is just a. It's a slog. Mm-hmm. And of that, only of that two hours, only about an hour was actual wrestling. <laughs> so I can't imagine. I, it's amazing to me that people got done with this and were like, "Wow, I really got my money's worth." Yeah. Um. So the the, the headlining event of the first WrestleMania was Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. Speaking of mania, so you got Hulkamania <laughs> and uh, versus Paul Orndorff and uh, Roddy Roddy Piper. And this little secret, this is something I didn't know about because anytime you hear anything about WrestleMania, the you know inside stuff, everyone hated Mr. T. Oh, apparently he was a dick. Oh, he was he was. I think as uh, Roddy Piper said, basically, Cindy Lauper came in and was like, what, what can I do to help you guys out? And Mr. T was basically, How, what can I do to help Mr. T out? Oh. He almost bailed at the last minute. Um, he didn't want to, he didn't want to like look bad in any way possible. So he had basically had to go in there and dominate these guys, even though he wasn't a real wrestler. Oh. Um, he And so Roddy Piper thought, he's going to make me look bad. So he refused to lose to him. So they had to work this thing. So Hogan had to beat him and it was like a big, a big mess. But, and and there are so many ways that WrestleMania could have absolutely crapped out and it didn't. And now it's like this whole weekend. It is the, when you, it's funny, you said the mania and you're referring to the, the wrestlers. I think it really is about the fans at this point. Yeah. You know, the, it's the whole weekend. You got the NXT, which is like basically triple a for, uh, minor league baseball of, of WWE. Um, you've got all these like access sort of things where you, you know, you got the people signing autographs and get to meet wrestlers and stuff like that. And I know people who just make it a habit every year. They just, they go to WrestleMania, like our friend Ashley. 
She goes with her uh, her boyfriend, uh, Russ, and mm-hmm. they've been going every year for the past Have several really? years. Huh. Yeah. And so even if you, it's something, I think, like the Super Bowl, where even if you're not a hardcore wrestling fan, you may watch WrestleMania, and that'll be the one thing you watch every year. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's like uh, Christians going to church on... Church on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Christmas, yeah. And it was almost called the Colossal Tussle. <laughs> that was the name that Vince McMahon was pushing before someone got to him and said, mm, Maybe not how about right. WrestleMania? <laughs> that is funny, because it does seem like Vince McMahon might be one of the last incarnations of the huckster in the... Um, P.T. Barnum kind of mold. Sure. And certainly that was his family legacy, right? That he yeah, his, dad, like, his dad was the original owner of yeah. WW at the time F. But like uh, almost like a Colonel Tom, <laughs> you know, kind oh, of Oh, sure, yeah. He was a, he was a, a, even before he was, for a long time he owned the company, but he was just, publicly was just an announcer for the company. Yeah. But he certainly had the ability to be able to create a spectacle. Yeah. And this was kind of the... Mm-hmm the the start of that and i would say he also kind of evolved into like almost like a ted turner kind of character kind of media mogul oh sure entertainment yeah. titan kind oh of yeah they had a big i mean they had a big feud and we could do an, an hour probably on ted turner versus vince mcmahon but mm-hmm. yeah i mean he definitely this was what launched wwf from being this sort of niche sort of wrestling you know just for wrestling fans to something mm-hmm. that like everybody knows hulk hogan everybody knows andre the giant yeah stuff like that that's interesting because I think of the mania aspect of it, like XFL, or you could have these big, big ideas, but unless it catches fire in the public consciousness, that there's no mania there. Yeah, I think too. There's you know I think there's, you know like the sporting aspect of it. All you know and, and every professional level sporting event has their big thing at the you know the Super Bowl or it's the World Series or, you know the finals. You know you're crowning a champion, and I think wrestling has. A series of champions in quotation marks, and then they just go to the next city and wrestle, and maybe they'll, you know, be champ. Not you know, lose the belt the next day, most likely not. But this, you know, I think this is definitely a way that they kind of provided themselves a. This is the end of the year, even though it's like in March or February, whatever the hell it is. It's like, oh, okay, this is yeah, end of the this, season. It's like the end of the this is the end Game of, the of Thrones. It's like the season ending episode. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the manias, uh, I was reading about the first WrestleMania and Roddy Piper talking about how they were supposed to have limos for all the wrestle, uh, main event wrestlers, at least, to get out of the arena. And when they got done for the heels, they the limos were mysteriously gone. So and and he, and you had these fans who were ready to kill the heel, the heels, yeah. kill Roddy Piper and Orndorff and all those guys. So they had to. Like push their way through, get a cab, get angrily get a cab, like to go, oh, just go, go, go. Yeah. I mean, this is what it was like in up through until what, probably late eighties, early nineties, where you had this group of fans who legitimately thought wrestling was real <laughs> and hated the bad guys and mm-hmm. wanted, you know, who who was I think Bobby Heenan got shot or shot at one time. Wow. While he was, or I think he got shot at while he was like working. He t- told a story about that. I mean, people really took this to the extreme. Wow, wow. That's uh, I was talking to a buddy about. Um, he was talking about Ozploitation films and how it's an entire 
genre or industry of films in which the stuntmen are always acting because they don't can't get actors <laughs> can't afford anything <laughs> can't afford. better yeah and that's very much true of wrestling in which the stuntmen are acting yeah and uh <laughs> i love that aspect of it but with wrestlemania they brought in celebrities to kind of up the uh the uh spectacle the mainstream of value of yeah. it yeah yeah Okay, so uh, Richard and Michael both agree on that. But so Richard's second is what? is Beatlemania. Oh, wow. also okay. on mine. Yeah. Okay. The right. musical. Wait, what? No, not <laughs> the musical. Although, that, although it would be great if it was. I think I saw the touring with um, with Marshall Crenshaw. Marshall Crenshaw. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. I, I know he did the Hollywood stop on the tour. So if uh-huh. you saw it, in, if, I don't, you wouldn't have seen it in Hollywood, but you would have seen it. No, I, th- I saw it in Kansas City, so maybe it wasn't Marshall. Who the hell knows? <laughs> Who the hell knows? <laughs> it's funny. I was actually looking at Beatlemania and like the list of that on the Wikipedia page. They have this list of all of the different people who did it. Yeah, and half of them are like. Also portrayed John in Rain, the mute, the, yeah. the Beatles tribute. Like this, yeah. there's this one really popular Beatles tribute, and it's like all the Beatlemania, the musical guys also went it. into that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So a Beatlemania. Um, I'm going to have quite a few musicians and musical ones on my list. There is something about music that connects with people, mm-hmm. and and drives this sort of break from normal fandom into something that becomes a mania. Um, and with the Beatles. Um, it was unlike anything anyone had really ever seen, at least in modern times. Oops. To make a point, Richard, I am flogging us all with a cable. Whipping, whipping you with a USB cable. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the Beatlemania actually started in the 1963, late 1963. They played a, a show at the London Palladium that was broadcast on television. And it was really the first time where a national audience got to see this phenomenon of these teenage Beatle fans screaming and crying and basically making it so you couldn't hear the Beatles actually perform. Um, And it's, uh, for me, it's one of the reasons it's interesting. It's if you didn't have Beatlemania, the Beatles probably continue to perform live Hmm. because one of the big reasons, if you, uh, I watched the anthology, the Beatles documentary. Oh, sure. And uh, they have a clip from John talking about that. And like they were playing in Japan. They're like, just basically, it was terrible. We sucked, but it didn't matter because nobody could hear us. Yeah. You know, they I, came to, sc- they came to scream at us. And right. To react to everything we did. And then, uh, so they're like, this is, there's no point in doing this. I yeah. Think a combination between uh, mania fans who are in the grip of a mania and the venues that would hold the amount of fans that they knew they could sell were not designed for concert. They had a PA that was meant to say, up next, Mickey Mantle. Right. <laughs> so that's it wasn't meant to amplify right. instruments and things like or that. Or like the Budokan, which was like a sumo wrestling hall. It, yeah. It, that's like where they were playing. They yeah. weren't music PAs. They were just a guy, an announcer PA. So. Yeah. So they basically got to the point where they're like, nobody can hear us anymore. This sucks. Mm-hmm. Let's stop going doing live shows and let's just focus on the studio and so maybe you don't have sergeant pepper if they continue yeah. to play live so it's partially i'm i'm intrigued by Beatlemania because of that um you know partially i'm intrigued because another thing i remember a clip from john lennon saying was being in Beatlemania, being one of the beatles it was like being in the hot the eye of a hurricane mm-hmm. and everything else was going on around you but if you were a beetle your life was basically fly into town, get in a limo, get smuggled into your hotel room, stay in your hotel room for a day, 
gets smuggled from the hotel room in a limo yeah. to the to the backstage, do your show, get back in a limo, get on the airplane and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Like you never had time to actually oh. interact with people. Mm-hmm. Like they talked about, I think it might have been in Japan, getting a day where they actually snuck away from their handlers and went out and just kind of did shopping incognito and stuff like that. And the handlers had to come back and get them after a couple of hours. Like very bad. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't go away from us. Very mm-hmm. dangerous. And, but that was the, the exception. Most of the time it was just isolation. So you would think it would be exciting and crazy to be part of this, like spectacle. Really. It was just stifling and boring. Yeah. And their, their observations in regards to uh, their sympathy for Elvis, who they had yet to meet but would meet, but knew that he was in it alone. Or he, he, he had yes. Red West or he had, you know, his, his mafia. But for the most part, it was in the early days, he didn't have those guys. He was just all by himself yeah. in that hotel room. What are you saying, Michael? Uh, I, I think that such a big propellant of it is is the images of these, especially like young teenage girls, just absolutely losing their minds. Yeah. Like there is a certain <laughs> a phenomenon of like fandom where you just give yourself over to whatever it is that you have declared to be mm-hmm. the most important thing in your life. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a young woman's love for a, yeah. a one of these four guys, you know, I'm sure each of them had their favorite um, Beatle and fell in love with them to a certain extent and to see them perform and which just, they just lost it. They just, you know, to see someone cry in happiness from the moment someone, it, it, it is, a, you know, this weird kind of psychosis. It is this weird thing. Boy, you just lost all, you just lost your entire thing and you've been crying. You've been so jazzed to see them and you're just crying throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Yeah. I crazy mean, for these guys. Yeah. I mean, like you didn't even get to see the show really because yeah. you were just like completely almost in a out of body experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Lewison's book, Tune In, goes up to basically the beginning of American Beatlemania and so there was UK Beatlemania for a year or so before, after Please Please Me. And American Beatlemania was kind of after A Hard Day's Night, which is interesting because with that film, I can't even imagine how a mania, in any case where a mania would uh, begin and there would already be a film that of it that depicts it, mm-hmm. had it not already happened in Britain and had they not rushed to make a B movie, black and white, when they're already making color films about these band, this this goofy band who they knew was going to be nothing six months from now. Sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, they thought it was you know they're cashing in on a fad. Yeah, that's, so that's totally what it was. So we're talking about Beatlemania as it impacted young people, mostly young girls at that time. But like they say about the Ramones tour of, of the U.S., that everybody who saw it. Not everybody saw it, but everybody did start a band. Right. Uh, it, any musician who you hear uh, in coming to age at the 60s, they always talk about seeing A Hard Day's Night and then deciding, I got to do that. That's yeah. There's no choice <laughs> but to do that thing. And I, and, I, and I read something while I was doing the research for this that was talked about the fact that this mainly hit girls. Mm-hmm. And you know the fact that in the 1960s, for adult females, you had this kind of you're having the start of, you know, this kind of women's liberation, sexual freedom was getting to be a little bit more open. Women had more options in terms of work and things like that. But that wasn't the case for teenage girls. Teenage girls were still expected to be very chaste and yeah. 
and and repress the kind of their their emotions. Yeah. So this was their one chance to be able to kind of emulate uh-huh. kind of the uh, the excitement that was going on with uh-huh. adult females at the yeah. time. I think it's an interesting too. It can't be understated like how much America was waiting for something like that. Britain, of course, people talk about that entire entire country still being in black and white after the war. They're still gray. But America, we had a president assassinated. <laughs> we yeah. had a racial uh, uh, unrest and all this stuff. And so here's this very bright, shiny object in the form of the British invasion, but specifically the Beatles that was such a wonderful reprieve from that. Yeah, I mean, we, there had been American versions of kind of the mania in the past, like Sinatra, specifically in the yeah. Bobby Sox riots and things like that, but nothing to to this extent. And to your point, it was the first time where it was something that was kind of foreign and cool as well. Yeah, uh, also to an emerging demographic, the American teenager, which is a baby boom phenomena. Yes. Here's all these people who had cars and money, and then now a market was waiting to consume all this stuff. So. Okay, so we are at our halftime, and uh, I think Rushmore Mania is gripping the nation. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Well, I, you know, I did have to fight through a, thong, a throng of screaming fans to get into your garage today. So, and by that I mean your dog. <laughs> My dog. I'm oh, sorry, Richard. They've torn your shirt. Oh, that that came pre-torn. It's hip. Um, I, I would love a thong of screaming fans. <laughs> hey, you could do worse than that, right? Depen- depending what they look like, you know. Uh, so, yes, participate in it. Uh, you can buy all our uh, Rushmore wigs and uh, Rushmore suits. The Rushmore Fan Club Rushmore will be fan starting club. soon. Uh, Richard's the dreamer. Michael's the hunk. I'm the goofy guy with the big nose who <laughs> keeps the beat behind the drum kit. Uh, so yeah, uh, you can participate in that mania by download rating and reviewing past episodes, and you could also suggest future episodes. We'd really dig it if you did. It would be fun to know what you want us to talk about. So we are back, and Michael's going to let us know his third mania. My third mania isn't a pop culture one. It is a is kleptomania. Okay. All right. Fun. <laughs> you stole that from somebody, didn't you? <laughs> he stole it. Um. It is one of the more fascinating of, they're all fascinating. Anytime that you are compelled to do something beyond what you know you can do. Hmm. Um, uh, Any of these manias that we discover, whether they are brought on by pop culture or your own personal psychosis and uh, situation, uh, when you get to a point when you can't control it, it's wild. You know, a lot of kleptomania isn't driven by, by need it's just driven by this need to steal something and to uh get away with it and it's not necessarily done by means of like oh i'm stealing i need to steal this very valuable thing in order to sell it or in order it's not it's not necessarily thievery in that sense it's not like you're planning something it's it is a so many of these are like these just compulsions you don't know what is motivating you whether it's something that um, was developed at like an early age and you got away with it and then you can kept getting away with it and mm-hmm. over and over and then it turned into just your behavior. I think it's very fascinating. I don't know if I've ever, I've certainly stolen things when I was like a teenager, like a little, like a candy bar or something just to see if you could do it. But like, I don't, 
wasn't for it a to, compulsion. For it to go from that to something else, I don't know what that exactly takes. Yeah. Thing I do remember hearing about a, a news story about this years ago, about a I think it was a, a study or something that showed with older people that they are the most likely group to be a compulsive thieves. Oh wow! And it's because it kind of gives them a. It's not because they need stuff necessarily. Or the money, or the the objects. It's about ha- give, basically having something that gives them a sense of excitement oh, in their wow. lives. It's kind of that thrill of, like Michael said, "Hey, can I take this? Can I get away with stealing this? You know, twelve pack of eggs, uh-huh. or this uh, twelve pack of eggs? That's like the most commonly used phrase for <laughs> not that, a dozen, right? no, twelve pack, <laughs> or this gallon of milk, or whatever it happens to be. And that's but that's what's exciting to them is like, yeah. can I get away with this? And that's that's what drives them. It's not necessarily. I mean, it sounds different in your ex's case. It sounds like that was really more driven by this need for material possessions. Yeah, yeah. Boy, every time I'm doing the self checkout, this <laughs> like thing. Boop. I just, I just made that noise. <laughs> if I just make can make the boop, right? They won't know that I didn't really scan. You put the thing down and it doesn't weigh, and it's on on it's on the scale. It's like how do you how does it know how much this exactly weighs? How does it? It doesn't know. No, it doesn't know. It's it's eleven eggs. How does it know? Uh, so when you brought that up, do you did have you stole anything, Michael? Uh, nothing of like any. I don't remember anything of any particular yeah. value. I probably took a candy bar or something from like a whatever just to try it yeah. and whatever. Yeah. Uh, I have a vague memory of going to a friend's house and like stealing one of his toys. Nice. Because I really, I really wanted that <laughs> He-Man character named Squeeze who was this guy with these big long snake arms. And um, I just took it because I... I could, yeah. you know, when you're 10 and he, maybe he, when you're playing in a friend's house and things get lost all the time. Yeah. In my head. Yeah. In my head is my justification <laughs> for it. But, um, all right. Manfredi, what's your third? My third one, and I referred to this a little bit with my Beatles choice, um, was the idea that this was, the Beatlemania was kind of the, the modern, first modern version of the big kind of musical mania or like the biggest version of that. Um, but it may not have been the uh, first historical version of this. Oh. I am talking about Listomania. Listomania. Yeah, which is not just a pretty Film. decent... Ken uh, Russell? Well, I was going to say a pretty decent Phoenix song or a pretty batshit insane Ken Russell yeah. movie, which <laughs> I do remember watching the movie Listomania because I had watched The Who's Tommy. And I thought, well, that's this movie's crazy, but it's kind of crazy like in a fun way. Yeah. And then you watch Listomania. It's like, what the f- is happening here? If you've never seen it, guys, it's just like a, it's a head trip. Yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about the actual Listomania. Franz Liszt, the uh, piano player and composer, um, basically was the first rock star of music before there was such a thing as rock and roll. Um, first off, it, he was the first guy to get up on a piano recital and actually start the, the recital from walking in off of the wings. Oh. Before, everyone just, you, the audience came in and the pianist was already there and then he started and that was kind of oh. that. He actually walked in from the wings to build a little bit more excitement. Hmm. Um, he was the first person to work from memory and not from sheet music. Oh, wow. Um, it was actually considered to be uh, arrogant 
to work without sheet music at the time, mm. but he thought it was something that created more of a an atmosphere, but more of a performance. And he would do things like he would turn the piano so that he was the audience could see him. And he was this really good looking guy, had this long flowing hair, and so that they could see him like sweating and his hair flowing and his beads of sweat coming off of him. And so he was he he was well aware of his potential for doing something that was could incite an audience and he did he, it, you know you know the the term listomania was something that actually came up in the press because he did this tour of europe and people especially women in their 20s to 40s were just going nuts you know storming the stage uh after his performance, if there was a broken piano string, they'd fight each other for it. If he had a cigar that he'd smoked, a, a, as soon as he put it out, some woman would come up and swoop, swoop it up and keep it as a souvenir. Yeah. And and to me, that just kind of shows that we can try to ascribe a lot of different cultural reasons for manias. And well, it started because of baby boomers or it started because of all yeah. these different things that we talked about with the Beatles. But to some extent, it's just the result of good showmanship. Mm. That if, if you are somebody who knows how to put on an exciting show and you're probably helps if you're really good looking and yeah. can play off of that and do all of these different things, you don't this need will happen. You don't need to have sociological s- conditions yeah, to to, to yeah. click into place yeah. for it to be able to happen. Those sociological conditions are always there, and it's not necessarily that there's a certain group of people who are more likely to yeah to fall under the sway of a mania. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I I I think it was the song "Rocking Me Amadeus" by right <laughs> Falco. Sure, that made me think that Amadeus would have been as, as or the a, movie Amadeus or the movie, really, yeah, yeah, which is not factually correct no. on on almost any level. I think yeah. Listomania is about as factually Factual, correct yeah. as as Amadeus. But wow, can you imagine the ladies like? Look at that wig. <laughs> it's powdered so well. That powder is just flying off when he hits those notes. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, okay, Winfield, what's your fourth? My last one. Um, maybe a bit of a Homer pick here in L.A., but Fernando Mania. Ah, very good. Uh, nice choice. A pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who debuted as this 19-year-old kid. Um, Fernando Valenzuela is uh, was a pitcher for the Dodgers and a few other teams, but um, he was this um, Mexican baseball pitcher who uh, went 8-0 in his first eight starts, and that year won the Cy Young Award, the Rookie of the Year Award. Dodgers also won the World Series that year, and yeah, he won but, the game that he pitched. The, but what was his whip? Uh, I don't know what his whip was. Okay. Richard, you had a whip earlier with that um, with USB, USB cable, cable. So My whip was right USB along cable. The, <laughs> right along the same, um, the same line. But um, I think uh, not only being this 19-year-old kind of chubby Mexican kid that was just gangbusters for the Dodgers. I think one of the things that drove people crazy was his youth, but that he was Mexican. We have a huge, you know, obviously um, Mexican and Mexican-American population here in Los Angeles and very much, you know, in in line with the Dodgers that if there is, you know, the Dodgers are very popular um, with the Hispanic population as they are with almost everything else here in L.A. And to have this 
you know, young kid from their backyard come in and just dominate so easily and so readily. It was just like something else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he'd come out and they'd uh, play Abba's Fernando uh, when he came (laughs) out. And uh, he got the nickname of El Toro. And he just, people went crazy, at least for the first year. Sure. And, you know, I think, I think baseball is prone to have like these kind of little magical moments. It's a very old, you know, it's an old timey sport, but it's prone to have these moments that people don't forget. And if you can build on it and um, uh, tag it with something as with a mania, right? then it just kind of cements its own legacy. Mm -hmm. I think there's something about baseball too, and I don't, I can't put my finger on it, but it tends to lend itself to these kind of out of nowhere success stories. Yeah. You know, maybe it's because games, you know, season's 162 games. It's a really streaky kind of sport. So you can have guys all of a sudden go in these like crazy hit streaks or, you know, go 8-0 in their first season or something like that. I I know one pitcher, Mark Fidrich, the bird, Mm -hmm. um, who pitched for uh, Detroit in the 1970s, was this big, goofy guy looking guy with like curly hair talk to the baseball whenever he'd get it back from the catcher, would shake hands with a fielder who made a good play and just became this like cult hero. And then two years later, he screwed up his knee and he was out of baseball. So there's something about, and there's, I can think of a lot of stories like that. There's something about baseball that really lends itself to that kind of romance of, Hey, where did this guy come from? We love him. Yeah. It's something fresh, something we haven't seen before. There definitely. um, And maybe it's, like I said, kind of the Homer nature of it. You know, there are a few times when a player has been on the Dodgers that just generates just like this. They're just these megawatts of power that come out of just their presence. Like when uh, Manny Ramirez oh, sure. first came to the Dodgers, it was crazy. Or, like, or Puig. Uh, yeah. So Puig as well. He's just this, like, you know, this guy that was just this brick shit house of a dude. And he, you know, he's the size of, you know, Bo Jackson, like sort of just all muscle and, just played like a crazy person. Manny played like a crazy person in a certain... <laughs> Manny may have been a crazy person. Well, yeah, but there are just like these moments where like these people come to your team and they just like, oh God, you just... It's like, you don't know why. You just fall in love with like these people. And Fernando was the same way. Just people just... Could be that he was a young kid. Could have been his um, Mexican heritage. Just everything. Just everything just fell into place Yeah, for at least, you know, at least at least one year, you know, he he was a pretty good pitcher after that, but like nothing, you know. Sometimes you just all you need is that one, mm-hmm. that one moment that just kind of solidifies everything. Yeah, I remember being in LA when he came back to the Dodgers after he had left and gone to like Padres and like two or three other teams, mm-hmm. and then he came back like in the late uh, early nineties, I guess it was. I was here, so it probably would have been ninety three, something like that. And it was just like this feeling of like, oh. Fernando's back. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's right with the world. Yeah. The Dodgers over the last few years have had some of their kind of um, some of their ex players who had gone off to play with other teams come back to play for them. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a very a similar feeling of like when um, uh, Russell Martin came back to play for the Dodgers for one year or mm-hmm. Matt Kemp came back to play for a couple of years of like, oh, yeah, these are these are the hometown guys that you know, made their, made their bones here and then went off and had additional success and came back and you're just like, Oh, that's right. They're wearing the colors that they should, they should wear again. Very something special about that. I'm sure it happens for every, 
you know, a lot of different, like, especially baseball franchises. I, I don't know if you have that, if that same feelings of basketball or. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think as much. Feel, yeah. Again, because I, th- I think a lot of that is, you, it's the length of the season. Yeah. You see these guys every day for like, you know, basically two thirds of the year. And they yeah. start to feel like family. I've heard that that uh, baseball was really one of the the Dodgers, uh, particular was one of the things that made LA feel like an actual city where it was kind of a region for so long. Hmm. That the advent of this team was a kind of necessary step to make this feel like a metropolis, like in New York. Whereas Santa Monica was a thing, um, you know, Burbank's a thing. All the, the valley is a thing, but there was no connectivity between all of those. And until the Dodgers came and became something we could all kind of focus on and root around and be a, this team could be opposed to the, the New Yorks and the Pittsburghs and things like that, it, this city didn't feel like L.A. Hmm. Like you wouldn't, us here in North Hollywood wouldn't feel like we had anything to do with Pasadena or with all these different areas. So uh, the idea too, that until there's a personality that emerges, you don't really, it doesn't really feel like it's ever, there's not a very human face to it yet. So that's, that's really cool. All right. The last one is Richards. All right. My last one, uh, sticking with music, sticking with uh, bands from the other side of the Atlantic. Oh, roller mania. Oh, the Bay City Rollers. Nice. Not actual roller derby. Nice. Although that would be pretty cool if I was talking about that and there had been roller derby mania. Uh-huh. No, the Bay City Rollers. Um, and I'm fascinated by them uh, primarily because, A, they were kind of a mania that wound up not translating from like the UK to the United uh-huh. States. They're one of those bands, and I think I floated this as a possible topic for us at one point, was bands that were big everywhere but in the u.s Hmm. and they certainly could fall into that example they had one number one hit and then a few top 10 singles Uh, but never not certainly not to the extent they did elsewhere in the world from japan to australia to the uk Um, i'm also fascinated because they were like in their late 20s when they broke out big and so i'm just I'm fascinated with this concept of what it must have been like to be like 26 years old and have like 14 year old girls screaming and throwing themselves at you. And you have to be like, no jailbait, bad, go away, go away. You know, they're, uh, they have this like Swingali type manager as I think every act did in the 1960s and seventies who really forced this like squeaky clean image on them. Like they don't drink, they just drink milk. At the same time, he was... <laughs> That's, like, creepy in itself. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, okay, if he has a beer every once in a while, what is the only... They only drink milk. God, they're <laughs> fucked up. What is that? Sponsored by the Milk Board of <laughs> Scotland. Um, at the same time, he was also pr- uh, providing them with speed on the regular so they could oh. keep up their massive touring schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to drink this entire gallon of milk. Here's the speed. <laughs> <laughs> massive milk production problems. They only had one one number one single, and it was Saturday Night. The good news about it is that's a fucking jam. Yeah. Not that the song is actually, most of the song is actually great. The one part that everyone remembers and that's actually great is the, the chant part. Yeah. And that was really playing off of, that's when glam rock was kind of successful yeah. in, in the UK. And you had these 
like Gary Glitter and Slade, who kind of had these songs that were like anthemic and had these chants kind of that you you could take that and to go chant it at a football match yeah. the next yeah. day. Um, I think it was Tommy Ramone who who uh, picked up on that and kind of use it's very specifically said that would be great we should do something like that with one of our songs and turn that into hey ho let's go oh fun so that's a fun little bit of trivia with with the rollers uh, another fun bit of trivia nick Lowe, uh yeah. fan of f- fan you know we're both all fans of here i think except for michael did the joke song yeah did it he wanted to get out of his uh he had a bad contract with united artists he wanted to get out of his contract, yeah. so he purposely wrote a terrible song called "Bay City Rollers." We love you, <laughs> and it's awful. And it wound up beca- becoming a hit in Japan. And they yeah. said, "Yes, this is great. Make more of these." <laughs> so he was kind of like stuck with it. Yeah. And that's how big Bay City Rollers were: is that shitty songs that just had something to do with the Bay City Rollers had a chance to become hits. Yeah, and. Uh, they're different than the Beatles. Beatlemania lasted until the Beatles basically said, we're done with it. Mm-hmm. We're not touring anymore, and we're going to move on to this next stage of our, our career. Bay City Rollers, are, I think, are more more representative of what, a man, what happens to a mania. Mm-hmm. Is the first group of the, the, the 15-year-old kids that were losing their minds become 18, 19-year-old college students and decide that they're a little bit too old for that. And their younger siblings are like, ass is lame. We're done with this. And within a few years, they were off trying to make new wave records and generally being consigned to the uh, bargain bins of yeah. your local record store. And I, I, I just find that fascinating that, that for every Beatles, there's a dozen BTS. And who knows what's going to happen with like a band like BTS. Yeah. But, you know, Backstreet Boys or One Direction or something like that that have this very almost purposeful, purposely built Planned obsolescence. Yeah, planned obsolescence. Yeah, yeah. A purposely built, like, kind of shelf life of not very long. Yeah. Yeah, in a, in a entertainment uh, medium that's driven by... It's all marketing people, and they it's, doesn't, it's not good for them to have these people, these stars that, that stay famous for too long because they want more money. And they, they want more power and more, more control. Power. Yeah. No, we can't have that. No, we want to put somebody... The market wants something new anyhow, so... I've been I've been um, rereading um, X Men comics from the 1970s to today. I'm trying to catch up to whatever's new, and uh, in like the kind of early 2000s, 2002 or three, where I am currently now in my kind of big 45, 50 year reread of like mostly just X Men comics, which is wild. Um, they had a book that came out that was called X Force that later became X Statics, and it was written by. Um, this guy named Peter Milligan with art by this guy, um, uh, Mike Alred. And it kind of reshaped like these random mutants into like pop stars. Mm -hmm. And they're constantly trying to work on like their, uh, their Q rating (laughs) and they're trying to kind of one up each other Mm -hmm. and try to see, uh, who is the most popular and, uh, how good, a death star within the team, how good, oh, wow. uh, you know, what leadership means. It's like uh, the idea of like, I love this idea of like this, uh, you know, mutants as fashionable and a superhero team as fashionable and what the, the teenagers are into and how they're constantly trying to, um, uh, they eventually all get killed, killed mm-hmm. I think. Sure. But like just the idea of like this um, limited lifespan, they're definitely 
you can feel them operating under this weight. Wow. As like a superhero. Team. Yeah. It's very interesting. The, uh, as a kid, I remember discovering hearing Bay City Roll. I think my cousin had the 45 of Saturday night, but then Saturday morning <laughs> after Scooby-Doo, if you watched the Croft Superstar Hour, <laughs> sure. Which was Nick. It was renamed the Bay City Rollers show after eight episodes because they were the centerpiece of it. But they had replaced a fake band on the Croft Super Show, Captain Cool and the Kongs, <laughs> like a, a band of actors from L.A. They put together that kind of that they clearly wanted a real band, but they nobody would do it, so they put together a band these schlubby schlubby actors. Cool Mania never took cool off. Cool Mania never took off. Um, but yeah, as a kid too, and and then. Anything that was related to, you know, Sigmund and the Sea Monster. If you this band is in the same world as Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, or like Witchy Poo, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. And, and then uh, the Hudson Brothers, Power Razzle Dazzle, the Razzle Dazzle Hour. Hour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like another mind blowing thing of like an Australia. Were they Australian? I forget what they were. No, they were American. Were they? Okay, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that's uh, pretty awesome. And and I think the residual nostalgia for the Bay City Rollers was enough to make. Uh, so I married an axe murderer. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure, the Ned's Atomic <laughs> Dustbin yeah, cover. Yeah, yeah, of Saturday Night with the Scottish character uh, uh, Mike Myers was playing as his own father. Okay, let's rate, rank them up. So y'all got, we got, we can't have a Mania without WrestleMania. We can't have a Mania show without Beatlemania. But because um, I didn't, it's a taste of LA that I didn't know about uh, Fernando Mania. I mean, I kind of <clears> knew, but I, did, I hadn't, wasn't here to experience it. And let's just go, let's keep it all music with some list, some roller mania. Roller mania. Right. So that was cool. We're back, guys. Woo. We did it. We're back. And the thing where you have to drive 45 minutes to back get Back in the house. Back in the house. Yo, yeah. <laughs> back in the thing where I have to drive for 45 minutes to get here to record for an hour and then another 45 minutes. Back. Sorry, dude. Well, I shouldn't have moved to the sticks. Yeah. We'll do two episodes the next time. Okay, this has been the Mount Rushmore of Manias. I, as always, am Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. 